0: So, I'm going to talk today about the first foundation of mindfulness, the first of the four bases for our being present, mindfulness of the body. In the teachings of the Buddha, in the Pali canon and the teachings, there are 45 years of teachings hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of discourses. But there are two discourses which are detailed, detailed in instruction about meditation. And the two of them are the Sadhipatthana Sutta, or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing. And in the Foundations of Mindfulness, under the first one, body, There's more instruction about mindfulness of breathing. These are where the Buddha spent, at least according to the records that we have, by far the most care and detail in explaining how to meditate. A lot of his discourses are about why one would meditate, the value in one's life, similes. There are plenty of instructions there also, but in detail these are by far the most thorough. So. And mindfulness of the body—the first one—is the most extensive of all of them. (laughs) There are like many different ways of practicing mindfulness of the body, taught in detail. So uh, it's an—it's. I I think it's fabulous to actually have such specific guidance that's been offered for this. You know, all these years continuously, two thousand six hundred years—that's a long time. So. To begin with, let me say my version of being mindful. A way that I like to think about it and and explain it is when we are not mindful, when we're being our normal human beings, it's like we are functioning in the normal way with our little, I call them our little minds. When we're mindful, we're employing an overview mind, a big mind. When we don't know we can do it, we only have the normal kind of mind which gets excited when things are excited exciting it gets um, worried when things are upsetting, it gets angry when things are hurtful or you know afraid it it uh, wants and longs for things it believes that its version of reality is the total reality, but it's only a small mind and it's only a small viewpoint because all it can see is your particular point of view. Your particular mind sees your particular reality in reference to your experience and doesn't see the whole picture and everyone else's state. As we practice mindfulness, we grow. We grow this big overview mind that has a way greater perspective, that can understand uh, that can see things in terms of the big picture, in terms of more people, in terms of your past, your present, your future. It's it's f- fabulous. The mind that we can use and live with is unbelievably powerful, but we don't use it. We don't know to use it initially, and we don't use it easily because it's not habitual for us, so we practice it. So um, it's like... A Big Mind and a Little Mind. Um, It's called in the teachings two views, the conventional view, meaning point of view, and uh, the ultimate view, or the the big view, or sometimes called the Dharma view. I like using that language, like the the big truths of things that affect everybody, not just moi. Grand poobah in the middle of the universe. Our little minds, our regular one that has coped you know, that's how we cope, and deal with our lives, that has helped us survive and make our plans and make our decisions. It's good. It's a great one. It works really well. It's nothing wrong with it. Um, it just is limited. It only is taking care of you personally. And what it does is, um, it's always very, very busy, as you've seen, <laughs> you know, trying to make you feel better. It's, it's just sweet. <laughs> And it's trying to make you happier by having more of the things that you think will make you happy and less of the things that you think will upset you. And everything else that isn't going to either make you happy or make you miserable, it doesn't even bother with. There's an awful lot going on that it misses because it's not directly going to impinge on your ups or downs. And as it doesn't just notice, it gets very busy with. So when there's something difficult or unpleasant happening, it doesn't just realize That's unpleasant. It goes through a lot of busy scheming to try and avoid it or get rid of it or fix it or not get there the next time and so on. And when it's encountering something that apparently is going to make you feel better, it schemes and chases and plans and organizes itself and how can I have more and so on. It's busy. We're tired. When we come on retreat, one of the first things we notice is, it's exhausting, this way of going about it. All with the best of intentions, this little mind. It's completely on your side, but it's pretty limited. One way the Buddha described this little mind functioning is it, um, he talks about it fabricating. it In its schemings, in its trying to fix, it's explaining, it's judging, it's... Um, Planning, and then this turns into that, and then that turns into that, and that turns into that. It's called proliferation, as we all know. The word for proliferation in the Pali language, I like the word, it's papancha. Papa, N-C-A, Papancha. And that's what it's doing all the time. Thinking, people describe thought trains. A lot of you know this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page about um, why we're practicing this Saripatthana. Another way of describing the two minds that is taught through the Buddhist teachings is using the Buddhist language of this, is the the mind that's the little mind is often called Mara, M-A-R-A. In the the days of the Buddha, a lot of um, deities, a lot of external beings are given the attributes of actually yourself. We still do it, and many cultures still do it, but Mara is the one that's the one who's the wanting this and the worrying about that and the scheming this and that, as though Mara is a being who's coming into you, who's like uh, possessing you in a way. So actually, it's quite nice to be able to say that because you can say, well, Mara did it. I didn't mean to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And Mara gets into us. That's why we use the word sometimes. We're possessed by Mara because Mara is lurking around ready to come in and uh, at every opportunity we'll come inside and then run our little minds Busily trying to be happy by getting rid of the unpleasant and getting more of the pleasant—it's like, it's not, it's not that bad. And the other, the big view, if you like, is the Buddha. So the Buddha and the Mara, the small and the big, the wise and the less wise, the limited and the unlimited, and like, like. Mara being a personification of being outside you, you can say the Buddha is a personification outside you, and the Buddha comes into you at other times. And so we're attempting to invite the Buddha in, that kind of big mind, and we're attempting to uninvite Mara from coming in. It's just another way of thinking about it and and seeing how it works. So... As we're meditating and everything the Buddha taught is we're attempting to develop and inhabit this bigger way of being able to think, to perceive, to see, to understand, to grow beyond the small, not to stop the small, not to make wrong the small, not to wish we didn't have the small. It's completely essential in survival, but it's not enough for well-being. So the body, well, here are four basic things about the body which I think are important. One is when we are conscious of our body, any aspect of our body, we have to be in the present moment to be able to notice it. Buddha mind, big mind, Dharma view, is only in the present moment. So if we're conscious of the body, we're much more likely to have been inviting Buddha mind in. So we are able to perceive what's going on right now by noticing the body. Whereas Mara mind, little mind, is often in the future, in fantasy, going over and over some scenario in the past, and so on. So that's one thing. Another thing about the body, when we're aware of our body, the body, what's going on in it, it actually doesn't lie. It's not a funny bunch of made up story in the body if you feel your body if you know you know if it's tired it's tired if it's tense it's tense it's not lying it really reveals what's going on for you so it's extremely reliable information whereas what you think about something is often utterly distorted at least. You know, you think things are wonderful when they're not so wonderful, or you think things are awful when they're not so awful. You think people are wrong when they're just being people, and all kinds of things. Our little mind, because it's so limited, can't see the big picture. But the body is so straightforward, innocent in a way, uncomplicated, so it's much more reliable. A third thing about being aware of the body, when we notice our body is the state of our body, and this is obvious, I know it's obvious, but we can learn so much about ourselves through the body. When we get to be able to speak the language of the body and get familiar with it, we, we know if we're agitated. We know if we're worrying. We know if we're all full of excitement. We can feel it physically. We know when we're, you know, like fed up. You know, when we're frustrated and we get all tight. We can feel it in the body directly, physically, and or energetically. It's, it reflects what's going on in a mind. And sometimes it's really hard to know what's going on in your mind. Some people find it easier to know what's going on in their mind than in their body, and some people vice versa. But they are the same, so they reflect each other. And so if you learn the language of the body and get to explore that, you will, it's a really fantastic way to get to understand what's going on in yourself. In your state, for instance, what kind of... How are you feeling about something? Check in. I'm feeling stuck. You know, I'm feeling like squirmy. I don't want to be here. You know, it's really really revealing. So that's the third thing about it. And by the way, the scientists say they measure these things. Um, When we communicate with each other, and I don't mean texting, I mean actually communicating... (laughs) the words that we use to communicate carry 7% of the information and all the rest is through body language and energy. So, you know, texting's not such a great communicator of information. Don't rely on it completely because we're, and one fear I have is that we're going to lose the other 80, you know, 93% of the faculties to be able to perceive what's going on. And a lot of that, a lot of it's intuitive and a lot of it we don't realize we're doing, but it's a lot to do with the body you know, It's not information, it's not theory, it's not words, you know, it's commentary, it's actually what we perceive. And so that's all reflected through the body, essential. And the fourth thing about the body um, is it doesn't lie, it's in the present moment, it reflects what's going on in, in, internally in the, the mind states and the heart states and so on, is uh, it doesn't proliferate it doesn't go off on storytelling. Once you feel something in your body, then you feel it, and that's the end of that. You go, oh, I'm feeling uptight. Period. (laughs) It's the mind that goes off if it's gonna go off. The body doesn't. So it really is a protector. If you can be aware of your body a lot, there is not so much room for Mara to get in there. When we're not aware of the body, then we're much more aware of the mind, and it's usually the little mind, and that's limited, At the least, and it's often quite risky. So, those are four great valuable qualities of being aware of your body. So, um, a couple of things to say that the Buddha actually described about the body in the Saripatthana Sutta here. In training ourselves, training this mind to become the Buddha mind rather than the Mara mind, there are two things we use, basically. Two parts of our meditation. One is the concentrating part, the collecting and settling and calming. And one is seeing clearly and understanding. So shamatha is concentrating and vipassana is seeing clearly. Concentration and insight. Through being aware of your body, practicing awareness of the body, both these, they're often described as wings of a bird. We have to have both wings. Both of them are accessible by practicing mindfulness of the body. That's not the case with every form of meditation object that we use or every technique that we can practice, but the mindfulness of the body. And the Buddha said it will lead us all the way to complete liberation. If you simply spend your entire meditation time being aware of your body in some aspect or another, that's enough. That's pretty something. Convincing. (laughs) Attractive. He also says, if we practice mindfulness of the body, it's a source of joy. I like that one. So a couple of the ways the Buddha described Um, that we can practice mindfulness of the body, and then I'll get more specific, are... uh, He uses similes a lot in his teachings, lots. And uh, he talks about um, giving such full attention to your body, being aware of your body, um, that you you can't get distracted. So it's about focusing in the body. And one way he describes focusing, concentrating, is imagine yourself walking through a marketplace with all kinds of sideshows, including, apparently, dancing girls. Quite often, they're used as examples of distraction for the young monks. Um, with With a container on your head filled with oil, a bowl filled with oil. And somebody's coming along behind you with a sword, and if you spill any of the oil, they will chop your head off. So, you don't get so distracted with the dancing girls. You keep part of your attention in balancing. I mean, you know, (laughs) you don't have to get too literal about it, but it's, you know, like, you know what that would be. Can you imagine, like, paying that much attention? When we pay full attention to something, there just isn't room for other things. So that's a description of concentration, any kind of concentration. But he uses it when he's describing being aware of your body. Another thing he talks about um, being aware of your body, which, again, is, is the same as being concentrated in meditation uh, he said it's like this is just another simile I like similes because my mind is always it pictures things, you know, full of images and so I, I like these, some of these images it's like being present and aware of your body, fully aware of your body it's, um, it's like putting a big post digging a, a post deep in the ground so it's a very stable post and then tying to it six wild animals and they're all trying to run in different directions but the post just stays completely And what happens to the wild animals is eventually they give up because they realize this is not actually, they can't get away. And the six wild animals are the six parts of your little mind, that, you know, the ones that are the, the, the seeing things and the, the, uh, the tasting things, the six sense doors. And, uh, and so, and they're kind of wild. I mean, you sit here and you attempt to be present. We give very simple instructions, be simple. It's not so simple, is it? <laughs> there's all this, all this wildness going on and all these memories and all this worrying and reactions to this and that, and you know, you see it. We're, we're very busy and very stimulated. You look like you're all thoroughly peaceful, but we know perfectly well. <laughs> <laughs> there may be times, but lots of times there's so much activity. So you've got these six things all pulling around. But if you're aware of your body, you have this sort of stable center and then those things can't. If you put a lot of your energy in being conscious of your body, they aren't so powerful. In, it's just a matter of relationship. They're less dramatic. You'll be less disturbed. Or Mara will come in and, and invade you less frequently and for less length of time. This is something a teacher taught me years ago. I'll never forget it. One of those little pithy things, particularly in the beginning of a meditation period, like the first few days of a retreat, say, um, or of, of the first minutes in a sitting, whatever you're doing. But I'll say what it is and then I'll say the but part. Don't do anything that takes you out of your body. Simple instruction. So if you're, you know, if you're aware of planning, stay in your body. doesn't mean to say you mustn't plan, but if you're planning, can you feel the excitement or the worry that's causing it? Stay embodied. Don't do anything that takes you out of the body. Put the focus in the body. It's some has been the most fabulous instruction for me. And all the time. So not just in sitting still and then when you get to your walking path, but just keep... Connected, keep connected, keep connected, some simple way. The but, I want to say, I already said a little bit of this yesterday. Um, Beware, especially those of you who've heard a lot of Dharma over time, who've done a fair amount of practice, beware that you don't become snobs about the instructions. For instance, don't be a snob about your body. You might think, yeah, yeah, I know all about the body. I know how to be mindful of the body. Yep, I'm mindful of the body. And not really keep honoring that, not really keep applying yourself. It's not that the the first foundation of mindfulness, for instance, be mindful of your body, is for beginning meditators and for you when you begin a, a period and then you go on to level two, level three, level four, level five. You don't graduate beyond it. The same way a musician doesn't graduate beyond doing scales. You begin with it, but you don't ever move beyond it. It's for all of us, all the time. So beware of your attitude and don't get too casual about it. Really keep always. What happens with experience is it's easier, it's more familiar, the language is accessible, we're more readily in the body, it's not such a big job. So it doesn't seem like such a big deal, but the being in it being in it all the time i'm I'm conscious of my body so much now, this is easy for me in that I've always been a very embodied person, and I started you know doing ballet at the age of five, for instance, and doing gymnastics, and I was always climbing trees and running around and being very physical. I've always been that way. So it's not been difficult. I started doing yoga as soon as I heard about it when I was 20. I've taught swing dance, all of that. You know, it's definitely Amelia. that's easy for me. And I like it, as you can tell when I describe it, because it's so accessible. But I think for all of us, even those who it's not completely your first you know, access, It's so helpful for those reasons I've said. Plus, the Buddha said, do it. So (laughs) forget that it's easy for yourself or not, just do it. Um, And I like to think of it as what I liked what Gil said this morning. If we can think of being here in this moment, knowing it through the body as our home, You want to go home. You want to be home. Home is familiar to you. It's safe to you. It's where you get your nourishment. It's where you avoid the challenges. It's your refuge. Be here. Let your body be the place that you come back to. It's simple. It's true. It's... And a lot of being in your body is lovely. I mean, certain parts of the body isn't so lovely, but a lot of being in a body is really comfortable. It is really nice being in a body. I don't know if anybody's had any out-of-body experiences, but it's kind of, I have a little bit when I was younger, scary and weird. I like having a body. When I first went out of the body, which was a really dramatic thing, I, was, I just was like, I want to be in my body. <laughs> I want you to enjoy being in the body, so not just do it because we're saying it's a good thing to do, it'll help you, but it actually is it, brilliant, amazing thing. Okay, let me talk a little bit more about um, the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta describes six aspects of being aware of the body. And um, I'm going to describe the two more coarse ones, the bigger obvious ones, and then going to the more subtle ones. So the first most obvious one is be conscious of all four postures. The four postures mean standing, walking, sitting, and lying down, in other words, all all of your movements. But he describes the postures, so be conscious. Now, we've learned walking meditation, we've learned standing meditation, we've learned sitting meditation. We don't give you instructions on lying down meditation, but, of course, it's not different. But be conscious of your body as it's in these different postures, as it's moving, as it's standing. And they're all a little different, you know. When you're standing, you'll notice those different things. You'll notice that all the activity going on in the kneecaps. You can't notice that when you're walking or when you're sitting. But when you're standing, you can. You know, there's quads lifting. Same thing when you're standing on your feet. The toes are very obvious. When you're standing on one foot, they're really busy. But you can't notice that when you're walking so well, for instance. So notice whatever you notice that are different in each of those four postures. The, the spreading out of the skeleton when you lie down, you know, the relief around the neck it no longer has to hold, for instance. There's plenty that's interesting in any of these postures. And then the next um, area isn't just the postures, that's kind of like where you are, it's your activities. And with this, he doesn't just teach be aware of your moving, your movements, as you act in all of the different ways, but he says be aware of, um, it's called comprehend the moving. In other words, it isn't just the actual moving, it's like wanting this, pushing against that, It's like, what's going on in your mind as well as your body when you do the movements you're doing and you you do all the activities that you do? Um, He, in the, the, the description in the Sutta, he talks about be mindful and aware of when you're coming and when you're going, of when you're reaching, when you're wearing your robes, you know, this is for his monks, when you're carrying your bowl... Today I was uh, sitting down having lunch with Gil and with Nancy and Greg. and We sit down at the table down there, and there are all the kids in the gardens. And some of them are really little kids. And at this time of year, they're given a pumpkin each. So here are these little children, you know, four-, five-, six-year-old children, and they each have a pumpkin. Well, they're small pumpkins, but for a little kid, they're heavy, and they all have to have two hands. And they walk really differently when both their hands are tied up with a pumpkin. And they're walking quite demurely, and they're paying a lot of attention And they don't run and skip around and turn like this because they're really preoccupied. They're little kids. I was really conscious of it's quite clever to give them pumpkins that are just a little bit too large for one hand, you know. Because if you have something in one hand, you can be, you know, all kinds of looseness with the other. But no, they're really on their pumpkins. (laughs) Mindfulness of two hands or a big bowl or the weight of something. Or, you know, I have a suitcase. Um, It's a carry on suitcase and it's new. And I like it a lot, and it's blue and shiny, but it's got four wheels, which is great for, like, weight, except that it doesn't have a handle on the side. So coming up here where it's dusty, I don't want all the dust in my new wheels, but it's long. And so I'm having to, like, bend over to the side to bring it up the steps because I, I don't want to wheel it, and I can't hold it crossways. So I'm really conscious. I was really conscious of climbing up with having my arm up and the discomfort of that kind of thing. So... Mindfulness of activities is that kind of thing. Like what all is going on with your body as you do the various things you do. An early teacher of mine said, when you're mindful, when you're really present, you'll be able to see um, this level of your activity clearly. Like he was comparing it between when you um, use a fork to to uh, pick up a piece of steamed broccoli. There's a delicate exercise when you pick up a piece of... If you like jab at it too hard, you'll break it, it'll mush up because it's a tender thing, it's a vegetable. If you go really sloppily and lightly, you won't pick it up. It needs a certain firmness of pressure, but not too much. We do so much of this with a no consciousness, but when you're aware of your body, you can actually feel, are you pushing too hard or hard enough or not quite hard enough in what you're doing, in the leaning, in the pressing... It might seem really sort of silly and trivial to you, to what I'm describing here. But if we can occupy yourself, especially in retreat, in this way, being interested in how it is you're doing what you're doing, all the little things you're doing, Mara can't jump in. You can't proliferate. You won't get all off in your dramas and stories and and troubles. It's, there's tons going on in these bodies all the time, so notice those things. Another thing about this as we do it more, you become more aware of your movements, and your movements are more appropriate. I love this when you 're on a retreat, especially with new people when I go and I, you know and i either participate in the retreat or teaching the retreat, things are kind of messy, but as the days go by, they get all tidy and tidy, and the f- shoes all get neatly put, and the people 's blankets get folded and, and we 're not giving instructions for that, but people are more tuned in to what they're doing, all these activities. And when we do them with more care, they're more appropriate. We're more considerate of leaving our shoes right in the open doorway where the next person will trip over them. We don't do that. We get much more sensitive. We get more, in a way, better, I think, by being attentive. I had a partner for a number of years who was really messy, but who was always losing things. I'm really tidy and I never lose things. (laughs) And he would say, you know, like, where's the so-and-so, always like poking me up, smacking. Where's the so-and-so, looking for things under things like this, you know, his keys and this and that. And so I remember telling him one day, when I put this, I always put my keys on that spot and I do it knowing I'm doing it. So next time I know I've done it because I remember placing them there so I don't lose them. And he's like, that's brilliant, he said. He was much more in his right brain. He was an artist in a way. He was an engineer also. But he was thinking of something else while putting something down. So he didn't notice where it was. So he didn't know where it had gone. But when you're more careful, you, it's, we're less clumsy. We're more appropriate. And what happens is, we don't, it's not just that we don't lose things, that we're careful and thoughtful. The movement itself becomes more efficient, more graceful. And so you walk with just enough effort to take that step, not too much, not too little, you don't trip, and we become more graceful. And one time I remember I was doing walking meditation outside Spirit Rock. Who's been to Spirit Rock? I expect most of you have been to Spirit Rock, mm-hmm. a lot of you. Spirit Rock's got a big sort of plaza area outside the dining, outside the meditation hall, tiled, and, and where we, people do walking meditation. And I was out there doing walking meditation, as a bunch of us were, during a retreat. It was a multi-day retreat, you know, maybe a 10-day or so retreat. So in other words, quite a few days into the retreat, quite a few people were getting fairly present and moving very mindfully. And uh, Jack Cornfield was one of the teachers And that night. And he came out at one point, and out of the corner of my eye, I knew he was there and saw a bunch of people, including me, doing walking meditation. It's a very little, minor thing. But that night in the talk, Jack said, I came out of the meditation hall this afternoon, and people were doing walking meditation. And he said, I saw people moving like stately Spanish galleons. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I was one of those stately Spanish galleons. And I felt like it. I was moving so gracefully because I was so present. There was no wasted energy. There was no clumsiness. It's actually lovely to get more mindful. And there are descriptions in the sutras of people going to the Buddha. There's even, there was even somebody whose name I don't remember who was an old person wanting to know if this apparent Buddha was really the, the real deal because he was old and he didn't want to make the journey unless it was worth going. You know? So he sent his young monks to go and check him out and see if he had the qualifications that he really was worth going to see. And one of the descri- they came back and described him, and one of the things they described is he was so graceful. You know, he, he would place the bowl just so, and he would just put his, you know, I don't think he wore shoes, I was going to say put his shoes on, I don't think he had any shoes, but the movement, that's a lovely. I like that. I like placing dishes just so. I dance around my kitchen, I thoroughly enjoy it. The reach and then place, and then the open, and it's, it's anyway. Okay, so that's a clear comprehension of activities. I think that's one of the things I like the most about having TV and watching, you know, gymnastics and all the things that, you know, the Olympics and everything, it's the, you know that phrase, poetry in motion. By watching some human physical activity that's just so well perfected, it's it's an uplifting thing I think. And they're, you know, they've worked and worked and worked and they're so precise and so mindful in whatever their activity. So that's the kind of quality of awareness that we can all have. We don't have to be gymnasts to do it, you know, just walk here. How are you with your slicing of your bread? <laughs> um, okay, then, so the, your postures and then activities. The next, in the order of subtlety, is uh, mindfulness of breathing. And already we've mentioned a fair bit of mindfulness of breathing. I'll just say a couple of words about awareness of breathing. Um the thing about breathing and why it's so popular, the Buddha practiced awareness of his breath all his life. I mean, you know, he became completely liberated. He completely understood what causes distress and, and no longer was ever distressed again. He was, like, utterly liberated. And then for 45 years, kept on teaching. So he didn't apparently need anything, but he still was conscious of his breathing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So just in case you think you'll grow out of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the thing about breathing is it's so useful. It's We all have it, all the time, for one thing. Utterly, you don't have to remember anything or anything special or fancy or remember special words or anywhere, everywhere. We all know this. Um, it's um, interesting. It's not that interesting. You're sitting here breathing in, breathing out. But actually when your mind gets more refined and more calm, which takes days even in one retreat, but it takes, you know, gradually over time, the mind gets way more subtle. There's a whole lot to be seen. It's, I mean, this morning Gil was saying, notice the difference between when you breathe in and breathe out. What on earth does he mean by that? But actually, when you breathe in, you work hard. When you breathe out, you relax. For instance, when you take one breath, the beginning of your breath is relatively gentle. The middle of the breath is a full-on activity and then it begins to subside and subside until it finally stops. It isn't just in, out. It's And when you watch really closely that it fades away and when does it actually end? We play with children, mindfulness with children by ringing a gong and saying, Listen until it stops. Put your hand up when you can no longer hear the sound of the gong. And you kids stay really close and pay attention, and and then they're ready, and eventually they can't hear it anymore. Be like that with your breath, for instance. I'm just giving you a couple of little things, but there's a lot to notice. And if you notice your breath, the quality of your breath, and then some minutes later the quality of your breath, sometimes it's rough, sometimes it's uneven, sometimes it becomes more even, sometimes it becomes silky. You know, sometimes it's it's jagged. Sometimes there's gaps between breaths. There's lots and lots to notice. which So it engages you in that way. The state of your mind will affect your breathing. If you're agitated, the breath is like this. You know, if you're dull, the breath is like that. gets very even and so on. There's a lot of information for an interested mind and your mind can perceive it gradually more and more. So it's useful in that way. the other thing about it is that it's not very complicated, so it does, it's not going to trigger you off into papancha, just as the body. Same with the body. You know, you don't, you're not going to love it, you're not going to hate it, you're not going to judge it as being a bad breath or a brilliant breath or anything like that. It just is, you know, so it's not problematic in any way like that. Um, yeah, those are the main things about why it's so useful, and it is very soothing, as, as again, this morning, Gill was saying, you know, when we, if we can breathe, we can breathe ourselves down when we're, when we're agitated. We can calm ourselves, soothe ourselves, let the agitation flow through by breathing it through. You know, we can use the breath to kind of move energy around. It's actually, it's, it's, you know, very useful. So that'll be enough for the breath. It can be delicious too. You can actually. Enjoy the nourishment of oxygen coming in, and enjoy the relief of release when you breathe out. You can really focus on the pleasure of breathing. Some teachers really, f- you know, in- direct you there. So uh, I like that. You can tell I like pleasure. <laughs> I'm called a sensory type. <laughs> um, okay, so then we then he teaches more into um, subtle things. It gets more subtle. So uh, a teaching which. Some of us have practiced, and not many, and we usually don't teach it much. But it's an interesting one: is to pay attention to the 32 different parts of your body—skin and hair and nails and teeth and bones and flesh and and uh, connective tissue and muscles—and then the fluidy pits and you know so on and so forth. Uh, you know, past the whole detail of all of it. You know, synovial fluid, on and on. It's an interesting way to focus the attention. You can really perceive lots, lots you can perceive, lots you can imagine yourself perceiving. A lot of time you don't realize that there's all kinds of moisture in your body, but just move your eyes to the right and left, and up and down. If you didn't have a lot of liquid in there, they'd get stuck. You've got liquid in the eyeballs. And what about your teeth? You know if you get really dehydrated, you know, you, it's uncomfortable. You go into the dentist and you've got those wads of cotton in your mouth and you can't move your lips, get stuck on your teeth. There's there's juice in there all the time. There's You know, in the joints, they would grate. And so on and so on. So there's lots of ways of being able to experience these more subtle aspects of our, our kinds of body. The main point of that is to see the body for what it really is rather than be mesmerized by the... Be enchanted by its beauty or its ugliness, its fatness or its thinness. It's just a bunch of stuff. It's a bunch of tissue. When I was um young woman with a newish baby, a year-old baby, my partner uh, did his Ph.D. research. He was in, in kinanthropometry in the kinesiology department. And, uh, and he had a, his study was to dissect and measure in all forms of measurable physical forms, human cadavers. And he did this to 32 cadavers in a a, uh, hospital medical school in Brussels. And so for entertainment, because there wasn't really much else I was doing, I had this little kid, we'd go down and see Daddy in the lab. So I got to see... All these, you know, medical students get this experience, but that's about it. I got to see all these different parts of bodies, inside and out. I've had brains in my hands. I've had kidneys and spleens, breasts. I've pulled ligaments and made feet go up and down. And the very first time I went in there, though, there was a there was this body hanging there, an old woman, and uh, I had it took a while for my emotions to run through about how I felt about being in the presence of this old naked body. And gradually, and I touched her, and I realized it just took, once my own reactivity settled down, there was actually nobody there. There was nobody to have a relationship with or to react to at all. It was just simply stuff. It could have been this kind of stuff. It happened to be flesh stuff, and so once the emotional part had subsided, it was fascinating um, and the reason for that, and these days in the in the lands of the Theravada Buddhism. Um, monastics go and get permission to go to hospitals and watch surgeries and stuff. They can go up in the galleries and watch the surgeries for the same reasons, to be able to actually see what's really going on in the body because we tend to relate to the body as me, aren't I this, aren't I that, I'm too this, I'm too that, I'm getting old and wrinkly now. We're so identified with ourselves and when we see that it's flesh and blood and hair and teeth and things we see much more truly, we're much less caught in our little minds' versions of relating to it. And that's the reason for doing it. It has that effect. And then more subtly yet, um, uh, we can perceive our body, experience our body in terms of the elements of it. The temperature element, the um, water, the earth element, and the air element. And so we can actually feel the solidity of the body. We can feel the liquidity of the body. We can feel the motion of the body, the energy of, the, of air. We can feel the temperature of the body, the heat, the cold. We can really feel the differences. Just feel your body there. Your armpits are going to be warmer than most other places. The places where your flesh is touching our flesh, you'll be warm. Whereas where your flesh is exposed, it'll be the coolest. Where it's covered with clothes, it's slightly warmer. You can feel the border between the edge of your sleeve. We can really tune into the temperature changes in the body. It's it's a more subtle way of experiencing the reality of the body rather than the image of the body or the identification with the body. When we notice this about the body, in its component parts, rather than the whole form, what happens, and that the reason we do this is the sense of me falls apart, is much more likely to fall apart. When we see ourselves as a, a mass, it's easy to be a young one, or a pretty one, or a clumsy one, or a, and it's easy to then make me of it. But when you see it as a bunch of skin and teeth and elements and pus and everything, it's just stuff. And so, where's me? I happen to have consciousness that rides around inside it as it moves, but it as something is seen as it as many things. And so, we get to be less stuck inside ourselves, less in the Mara mind. Again, I mean, some of these images are. are Violent, as you said earlier, Gill, and a little gruesome, perhaps. But the uh, a simile that's used when it, in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, describing mindfulness of the body, mindfulness over the body in terms of elements, is when you see the body in terms of its elements, it's like seeing meat. When you see the body that's not in terms of its elements, it's like seeing cows. And so, when you see, you know, a butchered cow, you relate to it as beef, not cow because it's now separated out into joints and things, chops or whatever, steaks. Whereas when it's all together and living, it, you don't see it as joints and steaks and roasts. You see it as a as a living entity, a single entity. And when we do that with our own body, we're much less likely to see it as me, the grand poobah in the center of the universe, and much more likely to see it as I'm part of this unfolding of conditions which are changing, which is the Buddha view of who I am, rather than the small view of, I am this important figure. <clears throat> and then the sixth way in the Sadipattana Sutta we're recommended that we um, look at our, our bodies is through the body as it dies and its being dead which is the same thing as I was already describing about going there to Brussels and seeing the, the components of it. Because, again, we're so identified with ourselves, and when there isn't anybody there, it's a body. It's a body that housed consciousness, but that's a temporary arrangement. And we all know this. When any of us have been around any form of death, any of our loved ones or seen our granny after she had deceased or whatever, whoever, most of us by now will have seen some aspect of a, a dead body in some form, even if it's not a person in your family, but, you know, a creature's dead body, it's different, it's mysterious. But we are so caught up in the the sense of me in our life, and the Buddha recommended we actually remember all the time, every day, that we're going to die, and we don't know when. And this reality is temporary and conditioned. And so the aspects of uh, being aware of the body in terms of that it will die, for one thing, and then in terms of the various stages of decay, Because that, again, takes it back into its separate pieces instead of it being the unified part. The same way as noticing the elements and the same way as noticing the the different parts of the body. The same idea keeps us in perspective. We also are very much, of course, shown through the dying process and the death process, the, the... the shortness of life, you know, the fleetingness of life, and then the preciousness of life, and all of the, the effect of that on our psyches, you know. It's like, you don't know how much longer you have to wake up in. So, let's make the most of it, you know. So, a couple of other things I want to say about, those are the the, the things that Buddha taught about it, but the, the thing that um, I find most most useful in working with the body is other than the the dancing around the kitchen and placing things neatly and all that, is the subtle energy of the body and being able to recognize, as we learn the language, when I'm pushing against life, when I'm up against it, like, for instance, trying to be friendly with this bully at the border, you know, and feeling the... The struggle against that. Feel, you know, feeling, or, or uh, feeling times when you shrink, when things are too difficult and you pull away and you just don't want to be there, or you, you, the wincing that goes on, for instance. Or times that our energy just collapses and gets dull. A lot of you describe that, you know, when you're sleepy the first day of a retreat. Or when you're burdened by worry. Burdened, we use the word burdened, it's a physical word, it describes the physical body carrying struggle. It's heavy. You know, or burdened by grief, and so on. So you can actually feel these things energetically. It's subtle, and it's easier for some than others, but I think it's unbelievably useful to be able to feel when you're pushing against life, when you're running from life, when you're angry with life, when you're afraid of something, when you're burdened by something, when you're burning up with, uh, with you know, you're angry, angry. Rage is the energy of that, to recognize it. When we can see it in terms of the body, we're less in it. We're able to develop more of this other mind that can see more what's going on, less involved, less caught, tangled, identified. When we're bracing against something, we can also feel when we're expansive, and when we're contracted. The Buddha said this, he said, My heart grown wide with loving kindness. A wide heart is... F- Perceivable. How do you feel a wide heart or a tight heart or a hard heart or a heavy heart or a light heart? I was walking one time. I flew to England. I love the English countryside. I arrived in England. I had one first night's sleep and then I started walking along. It's called the Ridgeway. It's a 5,000 year old walk through Wiltshire in England. I find it so beautiful. It was spring. The skylarks are singing. I honestly thought my heart was going to leap out of my chest. Mm -hmm. I could feel bounding joy physically. I could feel boom, woo. We can feel so much. It doesn't proliferate. It doesn't lie. It helps us understand our state of mind. Learn this kind of language. When we're relaxed, when we're open, receptive, we're spacious, available. When we're full up and unavailable and all perturbed, It's body language. It's energetic body language, but it's knowable. We become intimate with our inner world this way. It's how we do it. And not just our physical energy, but our heart itself. We can feel the wide heart, the frightened heart, the sad heart. I can't finish my talk without talking a little about how you work with pain, physical pain. So um, a couple of things, some of you have heard me say this before, when you're in a sitting meditation and everyone's quiet and you're trying to be still and you have got pain in your body, the small mind, the Mara mind, hates it. I mean, that's what it does, it's trying to get rid of pain and trying to make you comfortable. So it's going to be aversive and it's also going to proliferate, oh my God. This is crazy. What am I doing sitting here? I'm never going to be able to walk again. I'm not going to come to the retreat that I booked for Christmas. Right. That's That's Mara mind. So we want to have Buddha mind. We want to actually develop a sense of friendliness and a sense of interest and some spaciousness about this. Can we have pain and have a Buddha mind? Yes, it's possible. So how you do that is don't wait till the pain is horrible. When it's beginning to be irritating it will call your attention. You don't have to worry about remembering it. You'll find yourself noticing. So when you notice the pain, say in your knee, let your awareness explore around the edges of the pain. Locate it, okay, it's knee, but where exactly in the knee is the edge of it and where is it fine around the outside of that edge? So recede your attention into the comfy part of your thigh, or your calf or whatever, and then tentatively creep back and notice if you can find the edge. You might be able to actually know that it's a a three-and-a-half-inch diameter thing, let's say. You might not. It might not have a clear edge. It might be shifting and moving. It doesn't matter what information you get. What you're doing is you're relating to it with curiosity and friendliness instead of aversion and papancha. And it's the how you are behaving we're interested in, not what actually happens. So be interested. Another way, and then then leave it. Put your attention in your breathing, elsewhere, and it will pull you again. Another time, try, and you could do that for quite a few minutes at a time, because you're being Buddha mind. You're being curious and open and non-reactive and exploring. Um, go into the actual pain part itself and see if you can perceive what kind of pain, like what are the actual sensations, pain is a word, but what does it actually feel like? Is it pressing? Is it hot? Does it stab? Is it tingly? Is it swirling? Is it numb? Is it cold? What is what is it? Explore the quality. If you can perceive the quality, you obviously are interested rather than aversive. If you just hate it or worry about it, you would never be able to, you're full of that. There's no room to be interested. So we want to be more spacious, curious. Then we're practicing interest, curiosity, friendliness, rather than practicing aversion and papancha, which we don't need to practice, right? We already are very good at that. Way too good. Um, And then the third thing I would say with pain in the body is um, don't go there. Go to other parts which are comfortable. Like, just leave it because it's threatening. And so, give yourself some time to feel the parts of your body that are fine. Your shoulders are okay, your face is okay. There's lots of your body where there is no pain. We zero in on the squeaky wheel, so don't. Zero in on all of the unsqueaky bits of the wheel. There's tons of the rest of it. That's the third thing, and the fourth thing is move. Like, don't get all grim and and only do this if it's workable. If you get to the point that it's winning, move. There's, no, there's nothing to be gained by sitting there just doing small mind stuff with it. So there you go. That's what I'd say about pain. Um, I guess to finish two little final things. I've written down here, Roger Federer and Eckhart Tolle. What do they have in common? <laughs> If you see any photographs of Roger, who's one of my heroes, by the way, Roger Federer. Who does not know Roger Federer? Um, he's the best tennis player of all time, and he's still the champion. <laughs> An incredible tennis player, a Swiss man, who's been, you know, he was toppled from the top and he's regained his stature again. Um, if you see any photographs of Roger Federer playing tennis, any shot, he's a right-handed tennis player. His left hand is always relaxed. Almost every other tennis player is doing something with the rest of their body, grimacing. His face doesn't grimace. He's brilliant, but his left hand is always, like, gracious. If you ever see Eckhart Tolle talk, I haven't seen him for years, but does anybody not know who he is? Eckhart Tolle is um, self-realized, if you like. He had a huge spiritual realization, and he's written The Power of Now and um, various other books, and he lives in Vancouver. He was in England when he had this years ago um, interesting person to be, and so he speaks you know a lot of Dharma view because he 's lot lot in a big space, big mind when he talks, he sits and his left hand and i 've seen him talk for like three hours straight he 'll use his right hand a little to speak like i 'm flapping my arms around like the French you know, but he <laughs> His left hand never leaves his lap; it just sits completely relaxed. And he says, "I actually, I I do that deliberately. I just because I keep myself very in my body, very, very settled by keeping my left hand not moving." So I just wanted to throw that in as an intriguing thing. Watch your watch more mindfulness of activities. Really, that belongs there. Um, And then the last thing to say is, um, it's such an ironical thing what we're doing. The small mind is trying to get somewhere. It's trying to get something. It's trying to get better at something. It's trying to acquire a skill or to be relieved from pain or something. We're busy, goal-oriented. It's the small mind's way. And, uh, and this what we're actually developing is a big mind, uh, a Buddha mind, an overview that understands that the freedom we're seeking, it's freedom. It's freedom from oppression. We're not getting anywhere. We're not getting anything. We're simply freeing ourselves from the unnecessary extra struggling that the small mind is going through. It's another language than the small mind's language, but most of us only know the small mind's language, so that it's impossible to put into the words which belong in the small mind's language. But when there is a sense of connection, of presence, of awareness, we haven't got anything, but we're no longer... Struggling. We're no longer spinning wheels trying to make it different, better. We're no longer rearranging anything. There's simply... There isn't anything much, actually. (laughs) And it feels free and light and calm and connected. The little me has always got an agenda to make it better so I can feel okay. When there isn't a sense of the small one... It's the small one who's busy doing things. There's no small one doing anything. It's such an ironic thing. Mm -hmm. So when you're in your body, you're just in your body. Simple. Be here. You don't have to get it. Well, you don't have to, okay, now I'm in the body, now what do I do? Just be present with the help of this amazing thing called a body. And you'll see... It's shifting, it's changing, we all have them. It's fascinating. And it'll protect you from Mara. Let's just sit quietly and be embodied for a few minutes before I ring the bell. See what you notice about your body, your particular body. Keep on noticing it.